All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck nuts? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. WTF, welcome to it. Hope you're doing all right. I uh, It's very early. The shooting schedule's got me a little turned upside down, and I got some other things happening in my life that are consuming and overwhelming and taking up a lot of my time. Right off the top here, I do want to thank everyone who's been reading Waiting for the Punch, Words to Live By from the WTF podcast. We're really thrilled with the response. The The book is selling well. It's sweet. And we'll be doing our final Waiting for the Punch event of the year in Seattle one week from Saturday. Brendan and I will be at Third Place Books in Seward Park, November 11th at 7 p.m. Tickets are available at the store with the purchase of Waiting for the Punch. And if you can't make it and you still want a signed book, you can get one by going to podswag.com slash punch. It's the only site that has official signed copies. That's P-O-D-S-W-A-G dot com slash punch. Wow, man. I forgot about this. I for, I forgot about five in the morning, man. It's like, it's not, it's five in the morning. When I was doing morning radio, five in the morning was not an unusual place to be, but I, <laughs> judging by right now, I woke up this morning reali- realizing I had to, to record this, you know, for this show, because I got to go to set and do shoot all day, and it's just, I got to bring my car in. It's early. It is early. I want to read an email. Uh, hey, Mark, I'm a faithful listener for years and a huge fan of all your work. I'll try to make this short and sweet. I don't want to debate religion, but you've said something twice now in your opening of the podcast that I need to share my opinion on. Most recently, you said it in the Tracy Ullman episode. You said, quote, the evangelicals have made a deal with Satan to pursue their agenda, and Trump is fulfilling that agenda. I'm a Christ follower who has mostly attended non-denominational church as an adult. I do not consider myself evangelical, although I researched what it means to be evangelical, and it's not that far off from my beliefs. I guess I want to make sure you know that just because someone is a believer in the good news, it does not mean that all Christians stand behind Trump or his fellow criminals. I voted for Bernie in the primaries and Hillary in the actual election, so please don't assume that all Christians back Trump. I know you've been raised Jewish, and sometimes you lump all Jewish people into one category and catch flack from fellow Jewish listeners. All I'm doing is reminding you that not all Christians should be lumped into the same category, especially not one so offensive as to state that I want to spend time in the afterlife right now, so I choose Trump to bring forth what is stated in Revelations. That's it. Thanks for being my drive-to-work companion each day. Oh, and if you get the opportunity, you should interview Issa Rae from the HBO show Insecure. She's brilliant and hilarious. Best regards, Nora. We had Issa scheduled, um, and I'm trying to make that happen. That uh, I'll answer that right away. And uh, you're right. Uh, I appreciate your email, but could you get your Christians together to stop the other ones? If there's going to be a war, I wouldn't mind it being between y'all. You dig? Because you know what I'm saying. Shit is real. So, five in the morning. Yeah, morning radio. Reminds me of getting up 2.30 in the morning, get up to get to the studio about 3, 3.30, get jacked up on Dunkin' Donuts coffee and M&M's to get on the air at 6. Yeah, we overworked. We did it. We had to do a lot of uh, detailed and uh, <laughs> significant research every morning to get on the air for Morning Sedition back in the Air America days. But uh, I don't know how I did it. I don't know how I'm doing this. 
I guess I'm just a worker. I don't know what to tell you. Did I tell you who's on the show? I do have a, a, a sort of a, I, guess, I don't know if it's a hero, but a, a guy I love a lot. Two guys, actually, it turns out. But but John Hammond is on the show, the um, the blues musician. And, and I, I was just excited to meet him and to talk to him because uh, I don't know where I got his one of his records years ago, but I, I couldn't believe it. And he's done like 30 records, and he's always out there touring. It's just him and his uh, a couple of guitars. He's beyond uh, he's beyond great, and he's a very authentic blues musician, and he does something with the music that that no one really does. And uh, it was an honor to talk to him. So he'll be here soon. I'll tell you a little story before I uh, I, I start that interview. And uh, coming up first before John, Michael Rappaport. Uh, wanted to come by to talk, and which is a you know I, when you have Michael Rappaport over, he's got a new book out. It's uh it's called This Book Has Balls: Sports Rants from the MVP of Talking Trash. Uh, you can get that where all books are available. But those of you who are familiar with Michael Rappaport know that a conversation with him is sort of like an amusement park ride. <laughs> you kind of get on, you don't know what's going to happen, and you you just uh, hold on and engage where you can. I always like having him over. So this is me uh, having a little, a short but intense conversation with Michael Rappaport. What the fuck's going on with you? Are you all right? Didn't you start some shit recently? No, what shit? I don't know. Did you, uh, with Trump, did you start some shit? Oh, with- start some shit. You, when you, <laughs> with Trump, you're finishing shit. You're cleaning up shit. I didn't start any shit. He's like, <laughs> you, know, you know he- him in New York? Did you ever deal I, with him? No, I never I never dealt with Trump. I seen him around a couple of parties and things like that. But, you know, I mean, the thing about Trump in, in New York is like we know what the fuck he's all about. We, we've seen him out and about chasing skirt and forever, forever in New York. He's a you know, we've yeah. seen him on the corner before they, uh, you know, they fixed up. Times, times he's a fucking three card money player. That's what he is. <laughs> if you listen to him talk, like his Alabama, yeah, talk last week, that was classic three card Monty Hustle. shuck and jive, yeah, fucking you know bait and switch shit. That's yeah, that's yeah. what he does. He's brilliant in the same way that uh, you know, and not in a good way, and and <laughs> and bad kind of brilliant. You know, and I have to admit, I I do see parts of myself. In him, yeah, that's the difficult thing, right? If you're a little narcissistic, if you're a little bit of a charming asshole, you, yes, you, you can sort of like I get what he's doing. I get what he's doing, but 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 I'm not the president. <laughs> yeah, nor no. nor would nor would I I want to be not the yet. president. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Anything's now, fucking. Now anything's possible. If this motherfucker could be president, <laughs> anybody literally can be president. You can. He's lowered the bar on what's acceptable. Oh yeah, in in everything. And so, across the board. So so you got to help me out because, like, you know, I I got the book. This book has balls. I see, you know, it clearly is a sporting theme. Yes. The theme of sports. Yes. Now, I as a, I am a non-sports Jew. Yes. We, <laughs> we talk, There's many non-sports Jews. Did we talk about this before? We didn't. No. But you're like a full-on sports Jew. I'm a sports Jew. Yeah. I love sports. Yeah. I love sports. Um and uh, what what is it though? One, one guy said to me once when I when I told him I didn't like sports, he said Frank Santarelli, a comedian, goes, "Well, how do you feel alive?" That's I understand that. <laughs> you never played sports growing up. Sure, I played little league a little bit. I can hit a ball. I'm a physically fit guy. You look I'm not, fit. Yeah, I'm fit. I can. Uh, well, how do you stay fit? 
well, I work out and shit, but I mean, I don't competitive sports. I played a little tennis, played some baseball, uh, never basketball. Uh, I can hit a softball pretty good. I mean, I can do it. I swam when I was a kid. But can you smack team. the shit out? Of, like you look like one of those guys who can hit a softball. I can hit a softball. Which is not an easy. I'm not a good softball hitter. With your basketball player? I like basketball. I could, I could play. I could play ball. I grew up playing ball, but I was never a big. Hit I never the, had that hit, big stick. Not to hit the ball with the stick kind of. I guy. never. I never could hit it far. Uh-huh. You would think because of like my size. Yeah. But there's a technique. I like. I don't have a good stroke, Mark. So you no, must have you. a good stroke. I, I, well, you know, when I do it, I do it. You know, when it when it when, but you know, there's a lot of misses. There's a lot of you know. But you're you know, like sing, a second baseman. I can like see you sing, in left field making diving. Field. Ca- center field. Center field. No, no see, diving. Fat center field kid. Just backing up. There's a lot of backing up. There's no diving. There's no uh, holy shit. That thing's coming at me too fast. Right. A lot of time. Right. There it is. It's hanging there. Right. I'll right. Get right. Under it. The story is, I broke my nose in center field because I fell. Backing up to catch a, a fly ball, and you fell on your face. I tripped backwards, and it hit me in the face. The ball hit you in your nose. So I had it lined up, but right? That, but that's not a good indicator. You get hit in the face with a ball in center field. You're not a sportsman. If you get hit in the face with a ball in center field, you're not a fucking sportsman. And I could see why. <laughs> but 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 that was just like you know you didn't fight to overcome it. You it wasn't no, any. But I, was I could. But I could see why. Because yeah. if. I've always had a fear of breaking my nose because I got a very prominent yeah. Jew nose, yeah. and I'm proud of this fucking yeah. nose, and I don't want anything to happy happen yeah. to it. Right? Like my father's got a nose that makes mine look like 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 Rob Lowe's nose. Yeah. Well, look, if I take my glasses off, I got that's I, nice too. Yeah, I got a thing. That's it's, a, a, it's not as full as yours. You no, have, you have the full Jew. I have the the yeah. the Roman Jew. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. You have a Roman Jewish. <laughs> you nose. got the you got a little bulbous going. Yes, yes. yes. My father's <laughs> is like you know it's like old school. <laughs> Dinosaur Jew. He's that kind of <laughs> dinosaur Jew that, that won't exist. Yeah, they're almost gone. They're almost gone. Like that generation of Jews, <laughs> yeah. they won't be here. Yeah. You know, and it, it's, it's, you know, it's they'll sad. be extinct. It's sad. Like with the giant ears. Sure. My father's sure. ears are yeah. probably as big as my cock. Yeah. Like his ears are huge. It's a weird comparison, but. I'm, I'm just saying, like, they're like, they're like, you know, like 11 inches, like my cock. <laughs> I'm just playing. I'm just playing. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, but so the book, this book has balls, sports rants. From the MVP of talking trash. Who are your teams? New York teams, but but I'm 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 a players guy. Like I love like obviously I love the New York Giants. Yeah. I love the New York Knicks. I'm all fucked up about the Knicks, but 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 I love players. You yeah. know, like I love different players. Like basketball, football, yeah. are are my things. But you know, like I'll go with because the Knicks suck. Like basketball, like I go wherever. <laughs> you know, and I can't stand you LeBron. Had to abandon the Knicks. <laughs> I had to for my own my own well being and my own health. <laughs> because you get too angry. It's too much. It's a really dysfunctional, abusive relationship, and we deserve better. Yeah. We deserve Wait, better. what's going on? Explain it to me. It's just the Knicks have not won a championship since 1973. The owner is Trump-like, this yeah. guy James Dolan, and he doesn't give a shit about the fans. He he He's a rich guy whose father was a billionaire, and he was handed Madison Square Garden he owns the Madison Square Garden. The Knicks, the Rangers, Radio City Musical. He owns like a lot of New York. He's this little guy. Check this out. He's a billionaire yeah. whose father was a billionaire, and he has a blues band. Uh, I, do I need to explain anything else yeah. to you? What's his name again? James Dolan. Uh, He's in a fucking blues band. Yeah, it's no N- good. Not a rock and roll band. A blues band. A fucking blues band. And, and he can play the garden whenever he wants. He, he tours like on a private jet. Like he has a f- He's a billionaire that's... I mean, the, the antithesis... Of blues music, you know your music. Sure. 
Yeah. Fucking billionaire no. who owns Madison Square Garden and he was handed it yeah. by his father. Yeah. This the type of motherfucker. So there's just been one mishap of handling <laughs> after another. And they he he doesn't just own the team, which we couldn't blame him. He's he's owns the team and he's made basketball decisions. And you can tell he never even had the 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 life experience of getting hit in the face with a softball in center field that like was a you hard did. Ball. That was a hard ball. A hard ball. Yeah. So I, that but was, he's never even had that. You could right, just tell he never. Sure. Just a gilded cage kid, silver spoon. And nothing. he's in a blues band. He's got the balls to like do public shows. <laughs> What's the blues band called? I don't. The billionaire blues band. I don't <laughs> fucking know. I mean, the, to have the balls to be in a blues band, and I mean, you gotta. Have, and he'll talk about it like I understand the blues, and I'm like, no, you don't understand fucking anything. You don't even walk around your, your own city that you own half of. <laughs> So, you know, the Knicks are <laughs> fucked up. But the book is 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 essentially that. It's it's all sports. What you just did? Exactly. I mean, <laughs> that would be another that's for part two. But but it's essentially like it's just, you know, my frustrations. Um, you know, it's not all like, you know, negative stuff. It's not all like they yeah, suck. Yeah. It's you know, I fell in love with Mary Lou Retton in nineteen eighty four. Oh yeah. I fell Didn't in love everybody with everybody with, with the gymnast, right? Yes, but I took it to I really fell in love. I went to a, a you know a gym a gymnastics exhibition, and I thought like that was going to be like we were going to fall. I was fourteen, Mark. So don't judge me. I'm not going to judge you. So you so you went to see her on purpose? I no, I went to the garden. I actually went to Madison Square Garden to see her though. To see Mary Lou Retton, and and I went. I was dressed up, <laughs> and I had cologne on, and I thought like we're gonna yeah yeah it's gonna happen. You're gonna connect. And and she saw me. Looking at her, and, and God is my fucking witness. Yeah. I said, this is what came out of me. I, this has yeah. been like a, a month of preparation, and I, my, my father, I was like, you know, I gave up my, my Christmas presents. I was like, can you just, because he was like, what the fuck do you want to go to see gymnastics for? <laughs> what the fuck is it? I just, yeah. And I was like, I want to just go. I want to yeah. go. Like, And he was like, all right, but that's your Christmas present. I was like, all right, I'm, gonna, I'm on a Saturday by myself in Madison Square Garden. Dressed up. In a, in, in, in a turtleneck. In, in a, your bar mitzvah suit. And I'm thinking, like, I'm going to go there, and, like, Mary Loretta and I are going to fall in love. And I literally, while she came out, you know, it was like screaming kids. It was screaming kids and One Michael Rappaport. Like a fucking crazy person. And But I, in my head, I was like, well, she's going to see me. Yeah, yeah she's it's gonna all come. natural. This is, like, it's destined to happen. Why shouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I said to her when she got on the, the mats, I said... <laughs> I swear to God, me and you, Mary Lou, and she she looked over and I and God is my witness. She said to her brother, who was like her flunky security, guard, that guy looks weird. <laughs> it's just a true story. And I went back to my seat and then left and then walked home to in the fall, the fall of the, the fall, sad of, fall. Of, of New York City by myself. The sad uh, fall, leaves falling down. And then I went home and took down my little shrine I had made for her. No. I didn't I didn't rip it because I thought maybe we'd reconnect later, but. I put it in my closet, and and that was the end. You know, it's you, you know, it's even more amazing to me that if you know, if you had the opportunity to meet her now and just tell her that, she'd still be scared. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck! And I, you know, out of all the people I've ever met over the years, I've still never met yeah. Mary Lou Redmond. If you said, yeah, "I got a funny story," <laughs> she'd be like, "That shit's not funny." Yeah, yeah, yeah. She'd yeah, be like, "You're making me nervous." That guy now. looks weird. To her brother. Oh, so well. it's just shit like that. It's fun. And, you know, I mean. Whatever happened to her, anyways? I don't know. She's resting her puffy little feet in West Virginia. You know, she, she, she did a lot of jumping on those. She'll always be my Amer my sweetheart. It's funny, though. It's a scary moment when you look back on that stuff and you realize you get something in your head. Like I was thinking about the, the other day, how much you project. 
Like how much you, oh, there's something here. There's got to be something here, right? And you, there's no, you don't know anything. There's you know, nothing you're, here. You're making it up. And men do that way more than Always, women. Always. They do it throughout their life. I think I felt something. No, no. They, you just, you, you want that to be there. It's not there. Yeah. I, I have a friend of mine. He had a story. I'm not going to name his name. Yeah. He's never been on this podcast. <laughs> I'm not going to name his name. That narrows it down. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but he, I remember he was like, yeah, me and this girl were vibing and, you know, we were looking at each other in the eyes and, you know, I finally went over to her and I was like, you know, how you doing? And she was like, how you doing? And, she, and he was looking at her. He's a, like an eye contact yeah, guy, yeah, like, yeah. you know, like you're, you're, sure. you're, you're having soul connection. Yeah. And he said to her, you, are you thinking what I'm thinking? And she was like, yeah. And then she said, it looks like rain, right? And then he was like, yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> but like he thought they had this, you know, like this long standing like eye contact thing. And she was just like, yeah, it's going to fucking rain. You right? don't know what the hell people are no, thinking about. No, especially with women. And when you're young, you're so, so dumb. Yeah. And, and and that was the, at, at 14 that was the beginning of my dumbness. Yeah. At 14 cuz 14 to 25, yeah. 26, you're so dumb. I yeah. was at my prime dumb like at 23, yeah, 22. Yeah, that's, well, that's where it happens. That's where the that you know, if you don't <clears throat> if you live through 23, you're going to make it till your 30s. You you you'll but make you, it there. <laughs> but it's a dumb time. Dumb. Cuz you don't you just try and figure out who you are, right? You can't see outside of arm's length, but yeah. you think you got it all and you're yeah. fucking Parents are dumb. Yeah. They're dumb. They're dumb. Yeah. And you have it all figured out at yeah. 19. Yeah. yeah. And I'm walking around with gonorrhea at 19 and like, yeah, I know everything. How'd you get that? I just said uh, one night. That was actually 16. I got that plane. I, I, I got gonorrhea once. Yeah. Once uh, in high school when I, I first started having sex and I was having sex with three girls. I had had sex with three girls. Oh, so you made a mess of a lot of people's lives. I, I made a mess. I caught it from somebody, but I was at basketball practice. I might have been 17. I might have even been 18. All right, so somewhere between 16 and 18. Six, it was between 17 and 18, and I was at basketball practice. And, you know, this is before they had, like, compression shorts. You know when you work out now, they have, like, compression shorts and sure. underarm. This is where you just had tidy whities Yeah. Or a jock strap. Right. And who the fuck wants to wear a jock strap when right. you're 17? So sure. I was in my tidy whities at basketball practice at Martin Luther King High School in New York City. And I, um, you know, was guarding somebody, and I said, did I just piss myself? <laughs> And I look, and I like there was like a little bit of like a green thing. I went to the uh, a green the, thing. Like, it was, yo, gonorrhea. That's that's what it is, Mark. It's green. It's like green. You know, like it's like a little I drip. Never had it. You're better off. And well, then I, I, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I never once thought like, hey, you know, I kind of wish looking back on. Yeah, it, you but... never had that experience. <laughs> so that was yeah, but so that was, but only once, and only you, once. Yeah, you had to go to the doc. I had to go to the doctor. You had to go to like it's not the nurse. It's like the health room, yeah, and yeah. you go in there, and she's what's like, what's on? the matter? And you have to tell. Seventeen, you know, humiliating that shit is. And then you got to strip in front of a woman who's going to stick a cotton swab in the tip of your loaf. Yeah, and. Then she tells you you have it's fucking terrible. Did you ever figure out how who gave it to you? I, it's just one of one of these two or three women. Did you tell them? Nope. I was seventeen. <laughs> I didn't have the balls to tell them. I mean, uh, it was. I didn't see them again. Yeah. But it was. You know. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. a shameful thing. It is. Sure, it is. But luckily, it wasn't anything. Yeah. You know, anything long gave term. You, they gave you a shot, and that was that. They gave me a. Shot, yes, yeah. but the the, the 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 treatment for it isn't as bad as the sticking the cotton swab, yeah, in there to see what's going on. And as uh, a young seventeen-year-old, yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, 
It's embarrassing. I don't even know how we got on. I just admitted I had gonorrhea when I was, and that was 1987, folks. So the the, yeah. the ramifications. Yeah, are, you're, you're you're stupid then. Yeah, yeah. So wait, I was going to say you're on. You're doing a show, right? I'm on a show now with Jennifer Jason Lee. Jennifer Jason Lee. I haven't watched. Atypical. People like it. It's a good show on you Netflix. Like, you like working with her? I love her. She's great. I had her in here. Not too oh, long did ago. you have her in here? Yeah, it was great. She has good stories, right? Yeah. Well, she's just uh, she's intense. She's a real deal. You yeah. Know? But she she's um she's got good stories. She had a great career. Yeah, yeah. Worked with so many people. Um, good actress. Really good actress. Do you, do, are you are you is it you two working together a lot? Yeah, me and her working together. We're in a dysfunctional relationship. Um, you know, and 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 she's just good. You know, like I always I've always been a fan of hers. Yeah, and like she was like. You know somebody who I've think, always. Did you think that? No, no, no. I ne- well, when she was in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, it was either you were into her or Phoebe Cates. Yeah, like it was like one sure. or the other. Which way'd you go? I was into Jennifer Jason Lee. Yeah, but I, I mean, I not like, too. not like you know, like I wasn't like not like Mary Lou Retton. Right. And I'll tell her like I love you, Jennifer Jason Lee, but not like Mary Lou Retton. But I will tell you this: <laughs> when I worked with Jennifer Jason Lee, yeah, and we worked together for three months, every fucking day. The Jackson Brown song, You Got to Be Somebody's Baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's the song she lost her virginity yeah. to in oh, Fast, Fast Times. Times right. So every day it said, I'm like, got to be... And I'm like... Oh, she must have loved that. I never told her. I was too ashamed of myself. I, and she's cool. And like, I asked her all kinds of stories, but I was like, every day, I'd be listening to it in my... Like, it was like, became my obsessive song because... You'd play it? I'd play it. I'd play it. I'd sing it. I was like, you got to be some... Because that's the song. It was a very sexually charged movie for yeah, a, it was, a, sure, a young... For a kid. But she's always been one of my favorites. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, Atypical. And then I got this other show um, that's really fucking good that, that's coming out on Showtime with Jay Farrell called White Famous, which is nuts. Yeah, what is that? Jamie Foxx used to do this bit. He's an executive producer. He used to do this bit about... When he first came to Hollywood, like he had made it to a certain level of fame and success, but he wanted to be called, become white famous, like right. crossover. Right. And Jay Farrow is the star of this show, and it's essentially about a young comedian, talented guy who's trying to get big. Crossover, yeah. Big, big, big. Yeah. But it's very provocative in regards to race. Yeah. Um, you know, socially and, and things that go on in Hollywood, but it's really just about a guy trying to find his way and will how much will he compromise or not compromise to reach his dreams. Yeah. But it's fucking nuts. And it's what do just, you play? I play this director who um, is trying to get this young, hot comedian in his show, and the director's like, a, he's just nuts. He like, you know, m- you know, believes in method acting and like it has to be real. And he keeps sort of tricking him and taking him out of his comfort zone. And it's just very now. And even yeah. the title to me, like, I think it's just a great, like, I would love Donald Trump and all his followers to watch White Famous because yeah. it's going to drive them fucking insane. Yeah. What did we talk about the last time we were here? Oh, with the, was with the Sylvester Stallone, right? Copland. Yeah, Copland. Same type of shit. But what about De Niro? You work with him? Yeah, he's my man. Yeah. I love him. Did we talk about him last time? I mean, we could talk about him. It never gets old. He's fucking Bob De Niro. Yeah. I mean, he's he. I've never gotten like I've never talked to him about acting. Yeah. Like, I've talked to him about New York and just being around him. Like I don't want to be friends with him. Like yeah. it's not like I wouldn't be friends with him. But right. I, I I revere him and love him so much. Also. Why would he want to be? He's a seven-year-old dude. He's Bob De Niro. What the fuck does he want to talk to me about? I but know, yeah. I literally have been with him and met him. I've worked with him twice. Every time I see him, my heart 
palpitates. Like every t- it races like a girl at a Michael Jackson concert. I just have so much respect for him, and he means so much to me, and he's influenced me and inspired me so much. But what are you talking to him about? But what? How you doing, Bob? What's going on? Like, I mean, when I see him, like he'll kiss me on the cheek. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. And I'm like melting, yeah. like fucking Fonzie. You know, like I'm like literally like, you know, like a girl running away yeah, from Fonzie. Yeah, yeah. I just, <laughs> I see him all the time at the Tribeca Film Festival. Well, he and, must know, he must get oh, familiar no. with you because you, know, you both grew up in New York. Yeah. With well, language. Yeah, no, no totally. Yeah. You know, he's familiar and he, he knows I love him and I've done things at the Tribeca Film Festival and I've worked with him twice. But I just, there's certain people that, means so much to me that I, I don't want to try to break yeah, that. Yeah, right. I just, he, he's don't one Don't want to ruin it in a way. I don't, it's not, not that he'll be disappointed. I just adore him so fucking much. And, and, and now that he's gotten older, yeah. I think he's gotten more comfortable with people like me and the adoration that he's gotten for 40 years that has already made a very shy person even more shy. Yeah. But the fact, I mean, in my opinion, like, you know, what he's done with New York post 9-11 and the the outspokenness that he's taken towards Trump. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was one of his best performances when he called him that, a dog, yeah. a mutt. Yeah. A, for him to do that, who doesn't talk about anything, you know that he's crossed paths with Trump yeah, over the sure. years. This is a guy who's like, he knows this motherfucker's a dog, a mutt, a con, <laughs> yeah. a lie, a cheat. <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, fuck right. yeah, Bob. Tell him what the fuck is up because we all love you and yeah. we all want to call him a fucking dog, mutt, lie, con, and a fucking cheat. You memorized a monologue. Oh, it's one of his best performances <laughs> and it was off the cuff. Yeah. So <laughs> how's uh, so how's everything you got? How's your kids? Good? My kids are good. They're 15 and 17. They... um completely uninterested in everything I have to say or have to do. You know, it's like that white noise. Really? And now that they have Uber and stuff and one of them's actually driving, it's like they really don't need shit. Because in LA, like, you know, you're like a car you're a car yeah, service. Sure. A parent. Like, yeah. now it's like, you know, they're at the point where, I mean, when I was 15 and 17, my father was like, yeah. and I lived in New York. You were out getting gonorrhea. At I was, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'd come in, Dad, can I get $5, Dad? Can I, you know, you shut yeah. the door, you come in, you come and you right. go. So, that's, so that's you, you know what's up with them, but you, they're good kids. They're good. They're yeah. they're 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 but they're 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 doing thus <laughs> far. You're one of the only guys that can say that, and people are like, oh, okay. You, you know, yeah, yeah, they have yeah, tendencies yeah. And, and DNA stuff that they can't escape, but they're they're doing better than than I was at at, at seventeen. Yeah, are they in show business? I hope not. Oh, I so mean, it's not hasn't revealed revealed itself. It has, yet. Yeah, it hasn't reared its its ugly head yet. All right, let's we're gonna talk all day. The book, good book. The book has this book has balls. Sports rants from the MVP of talking trash. I always like talking to you. I love I love I talking to you. I, I imagine you could. Sometimes I feel like you know you, you could be talking and I could be like I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. This is Michael Rapport hosting the Mark Maron Perry podcast from yeah, Mark exactly. Maron. You do it. You step right up. <laughs> Good seeing you, man. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. Michael Rappaport, right? True character, true New York character. His book is called This Book Has Balls, Sports Rants from the MVP of Talking Trash. You can get that where you get books. John Hammond, you know, I thought about this talk that I had with him a lot after I had it. Uh, His father was John Hammond Jr., who was a, a, a very famous uh, A&R guy at Columbia Records, I believe, who signed Billie Holiday, Bob Dylan. He was involved all the way back. 
seemingly to the beginning of music, but he was Bruce Springsteen. He signed. He was a, a sort of ever-present, sort of mythic A and R guy. And John Hammond, the, who I talked to today, is his son. It was not a you know a close relationship, from what I understand. And I don't know that I really got to the to the core of a. Uh, of John Hammond here, but but what's what's at the core is some real blues, that's for sure, and maybe some of that uh, is is from the the that father and son relationship. I don't know. Maybe you can hear it underneath this conversation. Uh, you know, I'm not one to psychoanalyze. I don't want to talk too much shit, you know, before interviews. Uh, but you know, I found it resonant with me thinking about that, what that relationship must have been like, but. My experience with John Hammond as a musician, like I had this one record years ago in high school. I don't even know where I got it. I probably got it from a box of records that they didn't want to play at the record store next to where I uh, made sandwiches at the Posh Bagel on Central across from University of New Mexico next to Budget Records, which uh, dealt in mostly R&B sounds uh, at the time that I got the records. The owners were kind of R&B people, and they had this box of records that they weren't going to play in the store. In that box of records, uh, it, some of them changed my life, certainly Elvis Costello's first record and the John Hammond mileage album. And I just, I never heard anyone play like that. You know, he, he, he plays harmonica, and he plays guitar. Sometimes he plays a resonator guitar, a uh, steel resonator guitar. And he does it simultaneously, and he sings. And um, there's a pace to it. There's an intensity to it. There's something truly unique about the way John Hammond plays and sings. And he's been doing it forever. Back in the day, there were records that he made, you know, with all different types of bands. He made some stuff I didn't realize with, you know, Dwayne Allman. Uh, he, you know, he did records with um, Levon Helm. Robbie Robertson way back in the day he did uh he had a great combo for a while on source point and they're just a, a, an entire history of music with this guy that goes all the way back to the all the way back to the late 60s but the thing that I was a strange fan because of this one record mileage for years and I was visiting my brother for some reason I was in Tucson Arizona my brother was going to school there. I don't remember what year it was. I don't. I don't. I know I wasn't sober necessarily. I don't know. I can't place it in time, but this is my memory of it. I went there. I was with my brother, and we in the paper or somewhere we saw that John Hammond was playing at the Tucson Blues Society. I don't even know if that exists or what it is. Maybe it, I don't. They didn't have their own venue, but I remember going to a small space. It didn't feel like a performance space. It felt like a bar. And it was me and my friend Laura Madden, uh, who was living in Tucson at the time, and my brother. And we went into this room, and there was no opening act, no nothing. And from what I recall, it was maybe 40 people. And I don't know how they brought him out or why. It must have been a bar. I don't know. But I'd never seen John Hammond, and I'd never seen anything like this. You know, he came out with a national resonator guitar. And... This is my recollection. And he, he, he did Robert Johnson's Hellhound, Hellhounds on My Trail. And that's a tricky song because it's, you know, kind of not a full song. It's sort of a, a meditation. It's sort of a, a haunted thing, that, that bit. And he just summoned the spirit of the history of blues and it all came out of him. The authenticity of his particular 
type of singing and his presence and the immediacy of what he does is, is mind-blowing. He didn't want to play when, when I had him over. I don't know why, but it doesn't matter. Uh, you can go listen to him. I, it would have been great, but it didn't happen. But the, when he played Hellhounds on My Trail, and I saw that that night in, in, in Tucson, Arizona for 40 people, this, this blues wizard, I, it just changed everything I understood or knew about the blues and made it very personal and very immediate and, and, very, and he was just a portal to the pain that has always existed in humanity and in that music. And for those reasons, for those reasons, what reasons? All the reasons. Anyways, I went and saw him down here at McCabe's and he was just as amazing as ever. Uh, his, I met his wife and they just traveled together, just him and her in the dressing room. And uh, it was great. It was a, it was a real, it was very exciting for me. I wanted to share my excitement about John Hammond with you folks. And maybe you go listen to some John Hammond music. Uh, he's going to be in the New York City area tomorrow night, Friday, November 4th, at the Town Crier in Beacon, New York. And I would go see him if you could. This is me and the amazing John Hammond. Ash Grove was one of the great clubs ever. Yeah, it was out here? Yeah, um, uh, 8162 Melrose. Oh, I know. I think I heard someone else told me about that place. Became a comedy club. Yeah, the improv. Yes, exactly. And, and back in the day, it was like they had all kinds of music, it right? It was the best. It was like, a, a, but not just blues, everything. Everything. Bluegrass, jazz, poetry. That's what became the improv. That's yeah. crazy. Back I, in the day, Chich yeah. and Chong were a folk duo. Yeah. They did songs, uh -huh. you know, and... Uh, between songs, they had this patter yeah. that became so hysterical, the audience didn't want to hear the music anymore. Is that what happened? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, they're both really good guitar players. And, uh, well, I know that Tommy was a songwriter and part of an R&B yeah, yeah, outfit, Canadian R&B yeah, outfit. I think from Vancouver. Yeah, he's from Vancouver. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and Rich Marin, uh, he lived not far from the Ash Grove. Uh -huh. And they used to come hear me play. And uh, when they hit with their... Comedy, with, yeah. with their record they yeah. said how'd you like to go on tour with us so i opened for them for a bunch of times and uh all through the midwest uh -huh. on little chartered planes on that first stuff. record yeah oh man they, they were huge so, oh they were they were so funny i mean genuinely funny really yeah they were in guys. here together oh you know, not long ago a few years ago and and they were in and out you know uh as friends but they're very close no matter what yeah. but to hear them both on mic in my oh, head uh, just talking i was like uh, oh shit that's a <laughs> <laughs> I know it's wild. Yeah, they were great. Yeah. Well, like where I first, I think the first record I had of yours, like I'm 54. I just turned 54 yesterday, and I somehow I don't remember how Happy I got. Happy birthday! To, well, thank Ooh. you very much. But like I've always been sort of a, a blues freak since I was a kid because uh -huh. someone turned me onto it. But I, the first record I got of yours was Mileage. Mileage. Wow. Yeah, and I don't know where it came from in my back, but I had it in high school. And that, you know, uh, uh, Riding in the Moonlight? Yeah. That guitar on that? Uh -huh. It just killed me, man. Ooh. That album's great. And it, that, but that was the door in, right? And then, you know, as I get older, I realize, oh, he's done 100 records. <laughs> There's a lot of <laughs> a records. A lot of records. Huh. And then I kind of, I, I just, like, just the other day, I picked up one, uh, which, oh, what's it called? It was the one where I look at the back, I had no idea, 67, maybe the fourth record. 
and uh, I'm looking at the players, and it's Robbie Robertson, yep. Levon Helm, uh, uh, Bloomfield on piano. Right. Charlie Musselwhite's first recording yeah, session. Playing, <laughs> oh, was it really? Yeah. Oh, he's a hell of a hard player. He's oh, still around, right? Oh, yeah. He's doing better than ever. Oh, yeah? He's oh, up yeah. in the Bay Area? He's up in, well, north of the Bay Area. Uh-huh. And, uh, and he's he's doing some touring, I think, with Ben Harper. Okay. And, All right. Uh, he's he's doing really well. He was with Cindy Lauper on her no blues kidding. adventure. And, no kidding. She yeah. did a blues adventure? Yep, she did. <laughs> what, is, what is that? I know. Give me a break. What, what does that mean? <laughs> so which one? What that? Oh, that's So Many Roads, right? So Many Roads, right? 1964. But like, you're like, you've been, and, I, and then I saw you, I saw you, this is weird, because it was a pretty big moment for me. I was visiting my brother in Tucson. In Tucson, yeah. And you were like at the Tucson Blues Society. Uh-huh. Something like that. And, and I was in town. I'm like, that can't be. What, he's just going to be here? And it, there must have been like 40 people there. Yeah. And But the thing was was amazing, though. You played Hellhounds, and you just summoned the thing. I mean, that I, I don't, I've never heard, like, because when you listen to the Robert Johnson records, you can't picture that stuff being activated mm. in the sense of being live, but you did it. <laughs> I, do, I do so many Robert Johnson songs, yeah. What, was that a relationship that, in terms of your relationship with that music, did that come later, or was that there at the beginning? It was there in the beginning. I I, I first heard Robert Johnson on a, a, a Folkways album called The Country Blues. Yeah. That Sam Charters produced. Yeah. Or, well, he, it was out of his collection, I'm yeah. sure. And, uh, and there was just one cut, and... Who is this guy? You know, so yeah. I made it. A, what cut was it? Uh, but um, preaching blues. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, it became a quest to find out if he had recorded other things. Nobody seemed to know anything about it. Were him. you playing already? No, I was just a fan. Like, how old were you when you first heard that? Oh, sixteen. Uh huh. Uh huh. And um, so I, I found two other. Cuts of his on a Origin of Jazz Library. I think it was Swedish label or something. Isn't that wild? And uh, found two more. So they hadn't put it all out. They hadn't put that collection out yet. No, no. See, I, my my dad was responsible for that. See, I didn't really grow up with my dad. John I, Hammond Senior. Yeah, the... I, I knew him on occasion. You know, from you know a weekend, certain weekends, yeah. uh, two weeks in the summer, that kind of deal. And, but uh, he he's he signed Billy Holiday, oh, right? Dylan Springsteen, all of them. But you didn't you weren't hanging out another, there. No, no, I didn't hang out with him. So mm. one day I was up at his house. Yeah. And I said, "Dad, have you ever heard of a guy named Robert Johnson?" He said, "Funny you should ask." <laughs> and then he was trying to get him to play at his Spirituals to Swing concert uh-huh. in 1938. Yeah. And he had tracked him down and found out he had died. Ooh. Yeah. So he said, not only that, and he opens his his cabinet. Yeah. And he had four Robert Johnson That's records. The 78? On Vocalion. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. It was like a treasure trove. Oh, my God. I couldn't believe it. It yeah. was like I felt the hair stand on my neck kind of. Yeah, yeah. And he introduced me to this guy in Columbia who was in charge of the archives named Frank Driggs. Your dad and, did. Yeah. yeah. And Frank made me a, a tape, a reel-to-reel tape of like 12 Robert Johnson songs. Oh, my God. It was God. like I had died and gone to heaven kind yeah. of, and it was just unbelievable. And uh, 
So you were 16 about? Uh, no, I was 17 by then. Yeah. Uh, the album was released in 1960. Yeah. I Those think. 30 songs or however many? No, there, there weren't, weren't that many. There right. was like 12, I think. And that was it. And that was it. Well, there, there were others. There were outtakes and yeah. stuff. But but though that the the king of the of the Delta, Delta Blues, Blues was yeah. that 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 album. Yeah. And. Um, not long after that, I started playing guitar. Your old man put that out. He did. He produced yeah. it, and uh, and F- Frank Driggs was the guy who who engineered it and you know made it sound really so, good. So that was your moment. <clears throat> that was the, that was a moment. Yeah, but I, I mean, mean, I was a blues fanatic at that point. You know, I was into uh, you know Blind Boy Fuller, yeah. Blind Blind Willie McTell, all the the country blues guys. Who was the know? guy that lived in New York that Top Bromberg had to play? Which one was that? Maybe Reverend Gary Davis. Yeah, yeah. yeah Reverend, Reverend Gary, Gary Davis. Davis. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he was he was in the Bronx. Yeah. I went to his house once. You did too? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, y- y- Yorma Kalkinen was like a real fan of his uh-huh. too. Uh-huh. There was, I went to school at uh, Antioch College yeah. in Ohio. And uh, Yorma Kalkinen was, was a student there, older than me by a year. Uh-huh. And... Um, and he and this guy named Ian Buchanan were the guitar players. Uh-huh. And, they, and Ian Buchanan was like a really great guitar player and a good singer, too. Yeah. He was very shy. Yeah. Uh, so he never really got a career going for himself, but he was really phenomenal. And uh, Yorma was hanging out with him all the time. Uh-huh. He played a lot of Blind Boy Fuller stuff and a lot of that Piedmont style. Uh, yeah. I used to watch them play and say, oh. Holy shit! You know, <laughs> I gotta get to work. And you were playing at that point. I had just bought a guitar, and uh, I was too shy to ask anybody to show me anything. But I watched, and I picked up stuff. And oh, 1961 is when I started to really get intensely into it. So you grew up in New York City. I grew up in New York City. I went to art school in uh, Skowhegan, Maine. Uh-huh. And I your folks weren't together. No, no. I, I grew up with my mother and my brother Jason. Yeah. And um, in, in, the, the, in the village. Oh, yeah. And um, so I watched the whole village scene. What did you, know, you go to art school evolved. for? I was a painter and a sculptor. That's what I did. That's what I was good at. Everything else when was When you were a kid. Weird. Yeah. Uh-huh. And um, so I got to, into this like very prestigious art school. Yeah. One of my roommates was uh, a guy named David Getz. Yeah. And David, uh, you know, was a really good painter. Yeah. One of the teachers there was uh, Alex Katz. Oh, sure. Yeah. Hey, I know hey, his work. Yeah. Talk like this. He's from Brooklyn. Yeah. You know? yeah. He says, I'm a painter. <laughs> Not a painter, a painter. <laughs> he was such a character and such a phenomenal painter and a good teacher. Uh-huh. Uh, David Getz was uh, one of my roommates, and I, I had a, a collection of 45s, yeah. you know, and they, everybody wanted my records, you know, so we'd, there'd be parties. And stuff. Yeah. I, I was 17. I was the, the youngest s- student ever there, uh-huh. and all these guys were like uh, uh, scholarship guys from uh-huh. really well-known art schools and stuff, and... Uh, and you were this kid. And so, yeah, I was the, the kid. <laughs> yeah. And David, uh, after Skowhegan, he, he went to the San, San Francisco School of Fine Arts. And uh, he loved to play drums and uh-huh. stuff, so he was always fooling around and stuff. Yeah. Well, he put together Big Brother and the Holding Company. No kidding. He was the drummer. <laughs> yeah. He was the one who got Janis Joplin and stuff. <laughs> and it's a small world, you know. 
it, well, it was then. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if it's small anymore. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but it's certainly like that's always fascinates me about the scene. Yeah. Because like, you know, you're only like the folk scene was rock and roll officially starts in 57 and the folk scene was even more intimate. And so, there, you know, it all you, you were there at the beginning at, yeah. at that, that well, stuff. So it all happened. So why'd you why'd you give a painting? Uh, because I, once I had that guitar and started to sing those songs that I loved, uh, I just, that's all I wanted to do. It's like I found my calling. So you, you start playing guitar at what age? 61. I was uh, 18. That's late. Yeah, yeah, I guess. But I knew all the songs. I knew all the words. Because uh, you've been listening to the blues for right, so long. Right. I was And wandering really, around the village. Yes. and yeah. Were you going to see those guys before you started playing? I saw Josh White and Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, uh, Lead Belly once. But when I was seven, yeah, my father took, took me to hear Big Bill Brunzi. Oh, yeah. I was, this is uh, 1949. Wow. And Big Bill was unbelievable. And my father knew him, yeah. And uh, so he introduced me to him, and I was awed. I, I think that was the point at which I, I knew that blues was in me somehow because I mean I really connected to that music. And, uh, it really is in you. <laughs> I guess after fifty-five years on the road, I guess. Uh, <laughs> no, but like even at the beginning, I mean, yeah. your feel for it is insane. I mean, I no one plays like you, and no in the depth of it, because that's the experience I had listening to Hellhounds when you sat there with that national guitar, mm. in you know, in a small room with 40, 50 people in it, and you, you, it was like you, you know, you brought that thing to life, yeah. and it's a dark bit of business. Oh yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, I was into it completely. I, I, You know, I think that club was called Terry and Zeke's Friendly Bar. In Tucson? In Tucson. And there was a, a great DJ called Kid Squid. Uh-huh. And Kid Squid had this great collection of records. I mean, all kind of stuff. Yeah. From blues to, you know, funky R&B to uh, uh, a lot of uh, rockabilly stuff. Uh-huh. You know? I mean, he was the best dj i ever heard and he made me up some cassettes for the road you know oh yeah oh they were phenomenal oh that's sweet in 1961 you know i i made a trek to chicago hoping to see muddy waters or howling yeah 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 and i met michael bloomfield and charlie musclewhite and uh they took me all around to all these these clubs yeah i got to see wolf and muddy and no kidding. And not only was Michael a great guitar player, yeah. Muddy and Wolf would call him up to sit in on the bandstand. Like, and no shit. God, he was 17 and I was 18, and he was just amazing. And you just met him, you just found him? At, at the University hanging. of Chicago, there was a, a folk festival. Oh, okay. On, and, uh, and, you, and you went to see it? No, yeah, I, went, I didn't know Chicago at yeah. all. And then I met Michael and them, and they showed me around and charlie was a kid too charlie was a kid too if you turned sideways you couldn't see him he was oh really string bean. lanky oh yeah so that was before bloomfield was playing with anybody that's before he was playing with anybody with uh but, paul butterfield right yeah. well i mean paul and michael had a kind of love-hate relationship uh wasn't he in the band paul, or no oh he, yeah right. he was First eventually couple, yeah. but but um the way, way it turned out was that you know paul wanted to be the guy yeah uh he he had elvin bishop playing guitar with him right and he wouldn't let elvin take a solo but he's a harmonica player Uh, 
Paul. Yeah. Yeah. He took all the solos. So no guitar <laughs> solos. Just all, oh, no, I get it. Yeah, right. Yeah, just, I get uh, it. just in the pocket. Man. No kidding. <laughs> so Electra Records uh, said the only way we'll we'll record you, Paul, is if you have a, a lead guitar player. And it's got to be Michael Bloomfield. <laughs> Ooh. And I don't think Paul was very happy about that. Mm. But they made some great records. And, they did. Uh, and, and then and Bloomfield went on to play with Dylan in those seminal sort of uh, first electric I introduced things. him to Dylan. You did? I, I introduced <laughs> the band Come on. to Dylan. D- yeah. d- Dylan and I were really good friends. You know, when, when Bob f- first moved to New York, uh-huh. there were three guys, uh, Kerner, Ray, and Glover. And they were from Minneapolis. Yeah. And they were hanging out in New York playing gigs at, at coffee houses. And they were really good. Yeah. Uh, Dave Ray played a 12-string guitar. Uh-huh. Uh, John Kerner played six-string. And Tony Glover played harmonica. Uh-huh. And, and they were just wonderful. Yeah. And when Dylan came to New York, they introduced me to Bob. And, uh, and oh, because they were from Minneapolis. Yeah, and, yeah. From and, and, and we got along really well right off the bat. And Bob was... You know, like a, a Woody Guthrie guy. You yeah. Know, he had talking blues and uh-huh. stuff that were, and he was fantastic. I mean, what a great solo, man. That guy could really grab you, you know? Yeah. Was he hanging so, out with Ramblin' Jack then? Oh, yeah. He knew yeah. Jack. Every, the whole folk scene was yeah. so intense. Dave Van Ronk and all, all these great players in New York. I mean. And you were in it too? Oh, yeah. I was hanging. I was there. Now, what year was this? You 1961 think? and two. So you're you're playing out now. Yeah, I'm playing in little clubs, uh, the the past your hat coffee houses, uh, but not like Cafe Wa or the Cafe. Well, the Cafe Wa didn't come until a little later. Okay, but there were others, the Fat Black Pussycat, uh-huh. and you know, all these joints, and um, me and Dylan, uh, Richie Havens, oh yeah, yeah, John Sebastian, mm-hmm. uh, a guy who called himself a Juan Moreno. I think his name was. Uh, uh, Peter Cohen, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, he played flamenco style. And, uh-huh. Oh, there was a scene. It was yeah. a really a great scene. It was intense. And this is before it blew up. This is like as it this was. This is sixty one, early sixty two. And there was that one record store or uh, that had uh, the that folklore was, center. Yeah. That, oh yeah. It was like the headquarters. Izzy Young, Izzy Young yeah. ran the whole thing. Uh, Dave Van Ronk was like the mayor of, I right. mean, he knew everybody, anybody coming through that played a, a little blues or whatever mm-hmm. would hang out with Dave Van Ronk. And then those old blues guys got integrated into this scene, correct? Later. Wait, oh, it was later. later. So you meet Dylan and you meet the guys from the band. No, 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 no. Okay. I was playing gigs yeah. starting 62. My, okay. my, my career, I, I, I came to Los Angeles in March of 62. Really? And I started my whole career here. No kidding. I went as far away from home as I could get and yeah. uh, made myself up and was playing at the Ash Grove and the, the Troubadour. You moved here? I moved here, yeah. I I was ready to be somebody else, you know. I, yeah. I wanted to be John Hammond, the blues singer. And not John Hammond, the... The kid of the guy. Nah, right. I mean, <laughs> the, lots the of luck with that. From the neighborhood. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or the but painter. But anyway, anyway yeah. I was out here for about eight months. Uh, I got my first gig through Hoyt Axton. Oh, yeah. Hoyt was just the greatest guy. Oh, man. What a what a, a wonderful human being. And yeah. he got me my first paying gig in yeah. Southgate at the Satire Club. 
Frank and Joyce Thompson owned this place, and it was wonderful. Uh-huh. From there, I played at the Insomniac. Where was Bob that? Bob Hare. That was in Hermosa Beach. Oh, wow. Oh, and these were paying gigs. I and got you're with stories. a band or just yeah. on the guitar? No, I was just playing solo. I, yeah. That was how, to me, that was the art. If, if, if you could pull it off as a solo, that was like being Robert Johnson or Willie McTell or right. Blind Boy Full. That was the thing for me. So anyway, I worked all these gigs out here. This Who are you is, working with? Who's on the shows with you? Oh God, I was so many. Um, I played at the at the Ashgrove yeah. as an audition yeah. for opening for the Staple Singers. Oh, and that was they were awesome. They were just uh, pops on guitar, uh, Roebuck Staples, uh, Mavis Purvis, and Cleotha. I saw you open for them, I think, at the bottom line. Yeah. Like maybe a decade ago or yeah, so. Is that possible? That's very possible. And I remember- I a lot of shows with them. I remember watching you and I saw a string pop in the yeah. second song and I was like, oh, God damn it. Now I, he's got to deal with that. I can change it in 20 seconds. No problem. <laughs> anyway- uh, Yeah. So, okay. So, staples uh, and- just, And pop staples, you know, I, I, I played my little set and he came up to me and said, son, yeah. I don't know how in the world you learned to play like that. But whatever you do, don't stop. And it just filled me with a whole room. You know, I mean, I just yeah. knew this was, you yeah. know, it was going to happen. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's amazing. I got to meet all these these players out here. I got, I started to work often at the at the Ashgrove. Yeah, the Ashgrove was the greatest club. I worked shows there with Lightning Hopkins, with Doc Watson. Oh, yeah, Taj said he used to be a door guy there. Yeah, he was. <laughs> That's who it was. Taj moved here from Boston. <laughs> yeah. And and Taj, like, uh, put together the Rising Suns. They, they were so good. Oh, yeah. That first record? Oh. Yeah. Um, it sounds like a chess I mean, record. I mean, Ry Cooter. Oh, yeah. And Jesse Ed Davis. Oh, my God. These guys could really play. And Taj was a great harmonica player and a great guitar player. He was... The real deal. And you said you opened for Wolf? Yeah, I opened for Wolf at the Ashgrove for a week. Oh. It was incredible. With the whole, his whole band with Hubert and the guys? Yeah, Hubert, the whole package. Wow. And uh, and Wolf told me stories and stuff. I mean, he was really nice to me. I yeah. mean, he really thought I could play. And uh, You can play. But you were like 22? I was less. I was maybe 20, 21. And you were still, it was just you and the guitar? Yes, that's all I aspired and then I, you know, I came back to New York, and I got, I audi- auditioned at Gertie's Folk City, which mm-hmm. was the club in New mm-hmm. York, and uh, I got the gig. And I, me and Phil Oaks played for a week, and were held over for a week. Wow! And we both got signed up to Vanguard Records. Vanguard. I've been yeah. playing for less than a year professionally, and I had my first recording deal. And I knew Bob really well at the time. And I, Bob Dylan. Bob, yeah. yeah. Bob was the guy. You still talk to him? No. Not really? No, Bob is, you know. In, <laughs> He's off in Bob land. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, you know, yeah. he was just, he, I, I, I think he's incredible. Sure, yeah. And anyway, uh, I, I was playing gigs. I got a, a manager and an agent in 63, Manny Greenhill, Folklore Productions. Oh, yeah. And I got all these gigs in Canada, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal. Really? Did they like you better up there or something? No, they just there was a folk scene that oh, was yeah. happening. There was a circuit. So this is still before the blues folded in? 
or around the same time where the old blue, the guy 63 i i was playing gigs in toronto and a, a guy came backstage after yeah. one of my shows and said hey listen there's a band playing in town at the concord tavern you got to come check them out yeah so it was levon and the hawks yeah and uh they were incredible yeah and Robbie was like so intense, such a great guitar player. And Levon could sing his ass off. And they had a piano player named R- Richard Manuel, uh-huh. and he was phenomenal. Yeah, and he could sing too. Yeah, I mean, did. they were great. So anyway, they would call me up and sit in, and and we became really good friends. You'd go sit in with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, they w- would come down. See, they were the backup band for Ronnie Hawkins. Ronnie Hawkins, and yeah, they yeah. They left Ronnie and went out on their own, but played a lot of the same gigs that uh, Ronnie played when uh-huh. he came to the U.S. So they'd come down to J- Jersey Shore. Uh, Tony Mart was one of the clubs they played, and Joey D's Starlighter Lounge. Uh-huh. And, yeah, yeah. And I'd come and sit, sit in with them and stuff, and... And one day they they were you know trying to get a a, a recording deal in yeah. New York and it wasn't happening. And I was already signed to Vanguard, so I said, "Well, how would you guys like to play with me on a record?" Yeah, I said, "Sure, what the heck?" And yeah, so I invited Bob to the se- session and Michael Bloomfield and uh, Charlie were in town that week. And we had one session. That's three hours, and we made that whole album. In that three one, hours. that in so many roads, so many roads, three hours. Yeah, v- Vanguard thought that they were kind of scruffy. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but anyway, I mean, it came out real good. I introduced everybody record. to Dylan. Yeah. The next thing I know, uh, Robbie and Levon are playing with Dylan. You know. And wow. It's like, uh, so I'd introduced them all to Dylan, who used everybody. He used Michael yeah. Bloomfield. He. I mean, Bob and I were really good friends, and he he really respected where I came from. And uh, well, it was probably too because that wasn't really his world. And you know, like he was a blues fan, though, right? Oh, of course, always, right? But, but he uh, he really built the folk thing. That's right. Yeah. So when he broke out, it was monumental. <laughs> and it was a, it was a it was a smart next step. You know, the blues. It electric was his blues. thing. Yeah. It was his thing. He he really. Uh, he had the vision, and he. Did. I talked to Robbie. You did well, I have. You, and oh, they, they, when he talks about that tour, he was like, "Oh my god, mm-hmm. they're just getting booed off stage oh, everywhere." And he, it he, must have been unbelievable. He, I can't imagine how, how. And then he wanted to do more. Yeah, you know. And if if he hadn't sadly had that motorcycle accident, the band might not ever happen. I know. Tell me about it, man. It's it's wild. wow. It's yeah. too much. So what? So the first three records, he just dumped all at once. They all came out in '64. Your first three? No, 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 no. My 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 f- first album I recorded in December of '62. S- okay, it was released that, oh, that all right. summer. Yeah, and then I went into the s- studio again that fall. I made Big City Blues. Yeah, um, and then the next year I made uh, an album called Country Blues, which right. is um, I, yeah, I also to that acoustic this morning. solo. Yeah, and then um, that fall, I mean. It was I think November or so of '64. Uh, we we did the so many roads album, yeah. and um, then Robbie and I yeah. went up to the Brill Building, uh-huh. Tin Pan Alley, yeah. into Lieber and Stoller's office. He did, yeah. And we talked them into g- 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 giving us a session to to do a demo single. Uh huh. 
and uh, they had a studio. The, the Rolling Stones were in town, uh-huh. and they'd come to hear me play the year before. The Stones. Yeah. yeah. So Brian Jones and Bill Wyman came to the recording date. I got Bill to play bass on it. Yeah. Um, and Rick Danko. Ah. And uh, they had a, a, dr- dr- a studio drummer named Charles Otis from New Orleans who yeah. had had come up on uh, Lieber and Stoller's request. Uh-huh. And um, so we we were going to make two sides, right? Yeah. And we had a three-hour session, and we cut like 18 songs. No and, kidding. Yeah. And, that, and, that, and that's- uh, It became I Can I Tell. I Can Tell, right. Yeah. Danko's on that record? Yeah. And Bill Wyman, uh, I told Brian Jones, I'm sorry, I'm playing harmonica. Okay. So, and Robbie played as good as I ever heard anybody play guitar on that, man. He just killed me. Oh, man. I mean, Robbie, when he wanted to play blues, he played blues. He can, right? It always shocked me when, when he started playing, you know, more folk style yeah. stuff. But I guess that's, you know... Well, uh, Dylan's influence. Sure. Well, he cut his teeth and you know, real roadhouse shit. Like, oh, right? yeah. I mean, they had to deliver. <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time with those guys in yeah. Toronto. You know, I mean, um, I've been to uh, Robbie's home. I met his mother. And, yeah. You know, we, I mean, it was a very tight knit scene. And, uh, That's sweet. and Toronto had so many great players. You know, oh, man, Toronto was a real really? scene. Like Man, who? They, like who? Uh, uh-huh. David Clayton Thomas oh, yeah, had, yeah. had a band called Powerhouse. Yeah. And they were phenomenal. Mm. Um it's just like a lot of people doing it up there. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. Were you a fan of like uh, uh the, the British guys? Not really, not in the beginning, but when the Stones came to hear me play and I got to know Brian Jones. And I'm, Brian was a blues fanatic just like me. Uh-huh. You know, he was into it. And uh, if he had lived, I suppose the, they'd still be, you know, doing a whole lot more blues. Was that like 65, 66? S- 64 oh, and yeah. 5. Oh, that, so that, early that, on. That's when I knew them, yeah. And anyway... Because um, they were a real blues band. That's oh, what they wanted. yeah. They, I was on shows with uh, Fleetwood Mac. Peter Green. Oh, man. Oh, I was on shows best. with them and I heard them playing and said, oh, this yeah. is a blues band. No kidding. And the dude. next thing I know, they're doing rock and roll and- Well, he kind of spun out somehow. Yeah, whatever. I don't know. Listen, that, I, his, I don't want to get into, you know, I don't. Sure, I sure. didn't know everybody that well, so, so I didn't But know. he was a hell of a player though, huh? Oh, yeah, man. And Jeremy Spencer. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, man, these guys were into it big yeah. time. They were great. Blues fanatics. Yeah. That was the thing. That was That's the thing, really, wasn't it? Eric Clapton. I, I did my first tour in England in 65. Yeah. I went over there, you know, not knowing much yeah. uh, about the scene, and I met everybody. I went on tour with everybody John Mayall. Oh, yeah. And I met Eric Clapton, who was playing guitar with him, and uh, Eric was just you know, phenomenal. I mean, his idol was uh, Freddie King. Freddie King, yeah. And he he had that down. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he is also, like, brilliant. You know, I mean, he he had that upper vision, I guess. Uh-huh. He really knew what he was all about. And that I was met, when he was playing with the Blues Breakers? Yeah, the yeah. Blues Breakers. Yeah. And I met uh, Stevie Winwood. And, uh, I mean, these guys were really great players. I met Georgie Fame. There was a guy named Graham Bond, who, yeah, the Atomic Bond. Yeah, <laughs> he played he played the organ and the saxophone at the same time. Sure, yeah, he was nuts, man. This guy was out there. Yeah, uh, I was over in England, and Bob came and played his first show. Yeah, in England, and invited me to the Royal Albert Hall to hear him play. And it was 
He killed it. With the band? Oh, no. Just no, by himself? By himself. Oh, before, yeah. Joan Baez oh, was yeah. there. Oh, oh, my. It was, and I was hanging out in the back, and everything was being filmed by yeah. uh, the Penny Bakers and yeah. whatever it was. Oh, that's and that was tour, big, the Don't Look Back tour, right, right. When the, from the movie. Right. Uh, and, and then after the show, there was yeah. this big party, and there were the Beatles. Come on. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> John Lennon walks up to me, and he says, Dr. Kildare. And I said, no. He says, I know. He said, uh, he said how would you like to uh, drive around Hyde Park in my Rolls Royce? I said, okay. And we drove around, and <laughs> yeah. and it was really yeah. cool, yeah, really yeah, cool. Yeah. And I mean, John Lennon was something else, man. Sweet guy. An, oh, God, funny, right? So great and funny and brilliant, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I felt intimidated, obviously. Yeah. But yeah, a good time. Oh, man. Yeah. So anyway, I went back to the U.S. and all full of myself, you know, and uh, I was 65 and... 66, I was uh, hanging out in the village playing at the Gaslight. Yeah. And, um, and uh, I mean, it seems like so much happens yeah. in a short time when you're happening. You yeah. Know? And, uh, yeah. Um, I, I was playing at the Gaslight. Yeah. A, f- a friend of mine, uh, Ben Affelbaum, yeah. came down and said, man, there's a guy playing across the street at the Cafe Wa. <laughs> He's playing stuff <laughs> off your record. I said, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> So I went over between sets, and yeah. it was Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. He called himself Jimmy James at the uh-huh. time. And, yeah. And he was hanging out, and when he got done playing, I was introduced to him, and he said, man, I'm starving. Can you get me a gig? <laughs> yeah. So I'd played a um, a show at a, a place called the Cafe Ogogo. Uh-huh. And Howard Solomon was the owner. and uh, So I went over to Howard the next day, and I said, you know, if I put a band together, yeah. Um, he said, I got an opening next week. So I put this little band together with Jimmy James playing lead guitar. <laughs> Come on. I think every musician that was in New York came to the show. We, was for, we were there for a week. Because of, of uh, just they knew about you guys? Yeah. yeah. I mean, oh, man, Jimmy was unbelievable. He, okay. could, he could played with his teeth. He was just awesome. Was this like in before the Isley Brothers, or like hadn't he played with them a little bit? Or it's after, after the okay, he, he'd been he'd been on the road with Curtis Knight, right? And he was fired uh-huh. from the band for in being New too York, good in New York, uh-huh. yeah, probably upstaging yeah. him. And um, so he was just hanging out in New York. He was kind of stranded, and uh, so you put a band together. I put the band. Who's together. playing bass? Uh, oh God, there was so many guys sat in with oh, us. Oh really? Uh, just an ongoing sort of yes, like parade. It, it, it was great though. Um, Were you playing electric? Yeah, I was playing electric. And uh, at the end of the week, Chaz Chandler from the Animals yeah. came up to Jimmy and said, yeah. "You know, I'm I'm gonna keep, I'd love to record you. Here's money for a plane ticket to England. I'll record you and I'll put you on the uh-huh. map." And uh, he went. To, and that to was England. it. That was it, man. <laughs> that was it. Oh man! But when what you when you guys were playing together at that time, could you just tell that he was beyond oh, anybody that heard him play would just say, "Who is that?" Yeah, what is going uh, on? No, he was unbelievable. He was truly amazing, and uh, anybody that heard him would flip out. 
And what, did you ever see uh, or work with Jimmy Reed? Jimmy Reed, yeah. Yeah, because he lived oh. a while, right? Oh, he was incredible. Yeah. He was the guy. Everybody loved him. Uh, jazz guys, loved yeah. him, bluegrass guys, country guys. Everybody loved Jimmy Reed. Yeah. So I opened for him in uh, in Oakland. A guy named Chris Schrackwitz put together this concert. And, uh, yeah. I opened for Jimmy Reed. It was just awesome. Were you, and you were a fan, right? Oh, Did I was just like idolized him anyways I got got back to New York eventually and I told my friends you know I was on the show with Jimmy Lee yeah yeah and they said right uh huh Uh -huh. yeah (laughs) yeah, after a while I got you know I I, you know I I got tired of being told I was wrong yeah and uh, so I I like to tell this story about uh, 12 years ago Martin Scorsese put on uh, Uh the year of the blues spectacular Uh Radio City Music Hall, yeah. 50 artists, count them. And uh, there were two days of rehearsals. Yeah. My wife, Marl, and I are backstage, and uh, John Fogarty walks up to me. He says, man, I saw you open for Jimmy Reed. <laughs> Whoa. It's like, yeah. No, it was really, it was really cool. Because <laughs> he's from up there. Yeah, man. <laughs> he's probably a kid who went to go see it. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, it was, you know, I mean, I've had a lot of moments like that where, you know, it all yeah. sort of comes together. Right, right. So when did you start doing the, uh, you know, because like I noticed on, like, you go back and forth, but like Source Point, that's 1970 already, right? And oh, you did on the on the other records too, but you put together a okay. full electric band. In 1967, yeah. after I had had the experience playing with Jimmy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I approached Charles Otis, who had recorded on the I Can Tell record, uh-huh. and I said, "If I w- would you be interested in going on the road with me if I, if I put a band together? He's a, a drummer? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. He, was, he started his career in 1950 right. with Professor Longhair. Oh, down in oh, New Orleans. Oh, he yeah. he's a New Orleans yeah. guy. Yeah, so he's got that anyway, swing. So, got that swing. So Charles thought about it for a minute, and then he said, you know, I, I don't think I'd do it for anybody else, but for you, I'll do it. So we put together this power trio, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, John Hammond and the Screaming Nighthawks. Is that what it was? Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, we went to, uh, to um, well, 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 came out to the West Coast in 67, mm-hmm. played at the Avalon Ballroom with mm-hmm. uh, the Grateful Dead and all these other bands. Bill and, Graham presents? Uh, no, this was Ch- 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 Chet Helms. Okay. And, um, Before Bill Graham? Maybe maybe Bill was still was at was out here, but I this was the the offer that I had. Yeah, I uh, eventually played a lot of gigs for Bill. Yeah, what a guy. Yeah, Uh, he was the first guy that ever gave me a bonus. Oh, yeah, two hundred (laughs) and fifty dollars. I was in heaven. You played the Fillmore a lot. Yeah, I played the Fillmore East and West. Yeah, Um, but that was in later in the sixties. Later in the sixties. Yeah. Right. So, tell me about this trio. So you guys. Oh, so Charles Otis, Herman Pittman played the bass on some, some of the dates. Yeah. Other, other times we used Lee Collins. Other times um, um, Sherman Holmes. Uh-huh. Uh, Charles knew everybody. I mean, uh-huh. everywhere we went, if, if we came to L.A., we had a horn section. Uh-huh. If we went to, you know, I mean, he knew everybody everywhere. It was outrageous. Oh, so, and that's it's nice to go that loose with that music. Oh, so you man. can sure you can, anyway. It's like jump in kind of music, yeah, right? It wasn't, but you know, it was like my call. Yeah. And Charles had enough respect for me to, you know, say okay. Yeah. 
listen to what he says. And, yeah. And uh, I, it was, you know, I mean, Charles was a real mentor to me in so many ways. He was so professional. And he had toured with Lloyd Price and Little Richard. Uh-huh. He had toured with all these great New Orleans bands, you yeah. know. And had done the whole Chitlin circuit, you know, and... I mean, he was an amazing And that's what led guy. to Source Point? That's what led to Source Point. And it was supposed to be produced by Lieber and Stoller. Yeah. One afternoon at Columbia, and they said, John, we're out of here. I can't work with these people. With who? With Columbia oh, Records. okay. So all of a sudden, it was in my lap. And I had uh, Charles on drums and Billy Nichols on the bass. Uh-huh. And that was it. That was the the... And you produced it, yeah. I I had to. I mean, we had already booked the date. It's dates. probably the best thing, man. It was great, man. We had so much fun. It was so much. I fun. I can't imagine that record if Weber and Stoller produced it. Oh, it would have been great. They, they had a, a but it's pretty, pretty keyboard player named S.Q. Reader who was going to be on the show. Uh huh. S.Q. Reader. Yeah. And he was a protege of Little Richard. Uh huh. And he was out there, but he didn't play. We, we, no, he didn't play because uh, Mike and Jerry said no. Anyway, um, good record though. Oh yeah, Columbia Solid. did nothing with it, nothing for it. I think they were—they didn't know what to do. Is that your, wasn't that your dad's label? Yeah, but uh, he wasn't know, around. It was awkward, oh. you know. Yeah, very awkward. I, I got the thing because I got signed to Columbia because Arthur Penn, yeah, had asked me to do the music for Little Big Man. Great job on that, by and, the way. And um, that's what I, in order to do it I had to sign with Columbia wow so I signed with Columbia and uh, f- f- flew out here to do the yeah. uh, I mean I, I played live to the track I mean to the that was uh, just you and a film. guitar though was, it, yeah. was that a national you used uh, I used a national on some tunes and, and the other uh, uh, on my, my Gibson yeah I and, remember uh, seeing that's haunting man that's like <coughs> way before Bry Cooter did what a Movie. Oh yeah, man. man! I was so impressed. It's a great. I, it's I said great. to Arthur Penn, I said, "You know, the music I'm playing didn't yeah. exist." And he said, it "Doesn't matter. It'll work." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Arthur Penn was incredible. I, it I didn't really, exist. That yeah. music. It'll work. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I mean, because he had done uh, uh, Bonnie and Bonnie Clyde, and yeah. Clyde with uh, Flat and Scruggs, and that that worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I remember that the opening scene with the you know, with Hoffman and the old man. They, Turn that thing off. Yeah, right. Turn that thing off. Right, man. Yeah. Oh, so that's how you got into Columbia. Yeah, that's how through I got the into, side kind. Of. Yeah. So we we made Source Point, and they and, just sat on it. And you yeah. had one of those. You have one of those gold top deluxe. Yes, I did. It sounds so fucking good on that oh, record, man, man. I had so much fun making that record. Anyway, uh, the band was together. We were touring. Yeah. Um, and then you know we weren't getting any promotion. I was not making bucks, whatever. Right. Um, we, we'd go out on the road for a month and come back. Uh, I mean, I'd be broke. Yeah. Because uh, I wanted everybody to get paid. With and, that band. Yeah. The Source Point band. So I'd, I did some tours solo. I went back to playing mm-hmm. solo, and I was on tour with Delaney and Bonnie. Oh, yeah. And uh, and Delaney kept saying, hey, man, I love to produce a record on you. Yeah. So um, I went up to, to Columbia and... and uh, Clive Davis had just become the 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 guy the guy at yeah. Columbia, and uh, I said to him, um, uh, Delaney and Bonnie want to produce an album on me. And Clive looked at me and said, "Who?" Uh. And they had the number one and number two singles on the Billboard charts. Yeah, 
I said, Delaney and Bonnie? And I showed him that. He says, oh, oh. Yeah. So anyway, we I came back out here and we made um, uh, I'm Satisfied. Yeah. That, that was number two for Columbia. And... Um, and Delaney said to me, man, if this ain't a hit record, I'm going to kiss your ass on Broadway. That's what he said to me. And Clive Davis was so impressed with Delaney and Bonnie that he signed them, bought everything they ever did for Atlantic, gave him a, a bonus check for a quarter of a million dollars. I know this because Delaney showed me the check. Yeah. And they did nothing for me. Uh. And they went in the studio with Delaney and Bonnie and a month later, they got divorced, and then nothing ever happened. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. They keep right. the money? What's that? Oh, I'm sure they kept the money. <laughs> but anyway, that, that was the end of that. And then the third record I made for Columbia was with Michael Bloomfield and Dr. John. Oh, yeah, I have that record. Triumvirate. How do you feel about that record? I thought it was really good. There were some cuts on it I thought could have been, you know, hit records or whatever. Yeah. But never got promoted because... Every record label, Columbia, Atlantic, everybody got investigated by the FBI for, for payola. Pay well, yeah. Bad time. So there was no promotion, no nothing. We, we had just taped. Oh, um, it's heartbreaking. Uh, yeah, it was kind of a, a bummer for me. And um, so I went uh, uh, from Columbia, I went to Capricorn. Yeah. Because I had got, gotten to know uh, Dwayne Almond uh, really well. He, he, he had uh, recorded an album of mine, my last one for Atlantic. Which one? Uh, it was called Southern Fried. Oh, and he's on that? Yeah, man. Is he I gotta, ever? I got to get that record. And we got um, oh, damn we it. got we got to be really good friends, and, and Dwayne was phenomenal. He's, a, he's another guy that was sort of had the gift, right? Kind of awesome, touched. Awesome. I've worked with some great guitar players. No yeah. kidding. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, so I, 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 Dwayne had died. Uh, I had gone to... Uh, uh, Capricorn, because he said, oh, you know, we got a really good deal down there. So I went down to Macon, and I made an album called Can't Beat the Kid Yeah, uh, on Capricorn. And then he died? Uh, no, no, Dwayne had died before. Already? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, this, but I, I had done gigs with the Almond Brothers, sure. and I had signed up with uh, the Paragon Agency in Macon. Yeah. And uh, that was uh, not good for me. Yeah. I opened for... Wet Willie and Charlie Daniels <laughs> yeah. and Marshall Tucker and all these boogie bands, you know. And it didn't work. I got booed off the stage oh, at really? the time. Oh, fuck you, man. We want the Almond Brothers. Yeah. We want da, 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 da. Yeah, so yeah. it was one of those you know, Ugh, brutal. It was tough. And uh, I was on a gig in in um, in Vancouver, B.C. Uh, with John Hyatt. Uh -huh. And um, uh, J John Hyatt's... Uh, a agent was this guy Mike Kappas. Yeah, and um, and he had just formed a, an agency called Rosebud. Right. And uh, so I went to get paid after my show, and uh, there was a double contract, and uh, I got screwed out of a lot of money. And Mike was there; he watched the whole deal go down. That was my last show for for Paragon Agency. <laughs> yeah. And Mike said to me, "Listen, if you ever want to work with s someone who actually likes what you do." I'm the guy. Yeah. A week later, I called him up and I said, listen, I'm ready. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so I was with Mike with, for 36 years. Oh, no he kidding. He booked more than 4,000 shows for me. 
That's great. And uh, all over the world. Yeah. You know, I mean, the Rosebud Agency was just incredible. And they're no longer? No, he he, he closed the agency about three years ago, four years ago. Uh-huh. And um, he had done so much. I mean, he had, you know, he did uh, Muddy Waters and uh-huh. Willie Dixon and oh, no Luther Owls and yeah, all these yeah. incredible blues and roots players, Los Lobos, oh, John so Hyatt. Robert Cray. I yeah. mean, Mike Kappas was the guy. He yeah. was really wonderful. And so anyway. Uh, he retired. Yeah, he basically, although he's still very active and he does, you know, uh, he, he's got his hands in, in a lot of pies. What was it? What was your relationship with Muddy? Did you have one? Oh, yeah. I worked a lot of gigs with, with uh, Muddy. In fact, I got M- M- Muddy to sign with the Rosebud Agency. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean there was another just king of kings. He was oh, he and Wolf were like unbelievable. So different too, kind of. Yeah, right? totally different. And they weren't the best of friends. No, <laughs> well they were fighting each yeah, other. Yeah, well they were you know competitive. They, back in the day, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know uh, the the Chicago chess years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was you know everybody wanted to to be the guy. Yeah. My my wife Marla. I, I had met Marla in 1989, and yeah. uh, we got together in 1990. And she saw me through all of these uh, years of sort of being rediscovered, put on the map again. And um, and she was basically took care of a lot of the uh, uh, production stuff. You know, she kept uh-huh. track of all the things that I did well or, the, you know. Oh, yeah? Wasn't so perfect. Well, why don't you do that one again, John? You yeah. Know, oh, no kidding. Oh, she's she's got ears. Big time. And when these periods, though, because, like, I mean, you've done, like, you've put out, like, what, 30 or 35 records? 35 rec- albums. 35 yeah. albums. You, like, seem to do one every year or so. You tour your ass off. Yeah, I, yeah. Ma- I have to assume that, you, you you know, over the years, you've got a good following. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it's going as well as it ever did for yeah. me. Maybe better, but I'm not playing as many gigs. I, sure. I'll be seventy-five. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And you put it—you put it all in. Yeah, you know. I mean, it, no, I'm still having fun. You know, yeah. I mean, this is still good, but it's, you know, it's something that I I gotta pace myself. Otherwise, I'm just gonna, uh, yeah, melt or something. But I don't it, know. but in the downtime, when the time, you didn't seem to get bitter, did you? You know, life is is weird, and I knew that from the beginning. You know, when I when I told my <laughs> you father to all this is songs. what I was gonna do. Yeah. He said, this is a big mistake. And, you know, I mean, the business is the business, you know. It's really rough. But I can imagine, like, you know, having that father and then, like, knowing Bob Dylan, then knowing your dad signed Bob Dylan. <laughs> it's, there's got to be a moment where you're like, Ugh. Oh, man. Well, listen, I'm not my father. Yeah, and, uh, sure. But at the same time, you just got to stand back and say, holy cow, what a guy. Yeah. I mean, he discovered Count Basie and Billy yeah. Holiday, Lester Young, Charlie Christian. He put the band together for Benny Goodman, right. oh, who married his sister. No kidding. He was Uncle Benny. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then to go on from there, I mean, he, she, he, he discovered Aretha Franklin uh-huh. and George Benson. Uh, God, he kept going. For oh, a, man. And then Leonard it? Cohen and r- did, did the last, uh, 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 I mean, the put Pete Seeker back on the map. Right. And then, um, you know, Dylan and. Uh, Billy Holiday, right? Yeah, and Billy Springsteen, Holiday. And Springsteen. Springsteen, later. hello. That's crazy. And, um, oh, 
Yeah. But the business is so rough and weird. I mean, my dad had a terrible stroke, you know, and he was like really hurting. My father ne- never took a royalty from any of the artists he produced uh-huh. ever. Oh, no kidding. And he took a salary from Columbia, and that was it. He never. Really? That was, and it, I mean, it wasn't even much. And so here he is sick on his, you know, in bed, and Columbia wouldn't pay for his hospital expenses. Oh, my God. And it took Bruce Springsteen to come and say, if you don't take care of John Hammond's medical, I'm out of here. Wow. And they did, and they finally did, you know, but it took that. No kidding. That's the business, you know. It's like, it's rough, and it's And he tried to warn you. He did. He said, this is a big mistake. But, you know, I mean, this was in me to do it. Did did you have any sense if he listened to your records or liked your records? Oh, yeah. Oh, he did? Oh, yeah. No, he he became an advocate for me, I guess. But in the background, I sure. never asked him for anything. Yeah, but like, but he, he got could, it. He got it. Oh, he he, did. he knew yeah. you were the real deal. Yeah. Well, I don't know if he knew if I was the real deal, but he <laughs> he didn't want me to starve to death. <laughs> no, he was he he was an amazing human being. And what what about uh, what's your relationship with Waits? Because that's a beautiful record you did oh, of the Waits songs, Tom. Tom produced that album. Yeah. I mean, uh, with my Whose wife idea Marla. Was that? It was Marla's idea. Oh yeah. I, I was. Um, t- Tom had asked me to to do some stuff on his uh, Mule Variations album. You played harp, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so we're hanging out in Northern California, and um, my wife Marla and Tom's wife K- Kathleen were hanging out. And this was the the s- studio was very near where Tom lives. Uh, the Prairie Suns studio. Yeah. And Marla said, listen, what do you think the idea of Tom producing an album on John? He could be home every night, take care of the kids, you know. Yeah. And Kathleen said, you know, that would be a great idea. <laughs> so all of a sudden we, you know, it was in our laps to do something and uh, out came Wicked Grin and it was uh, the best-selling record of any that I've ever done. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. It's still selling, you know. It's great. Uh, I was uh, in L.A. about three years ago. I was up for a Grammy. For which record? Uh, oh, for Rough and Tough? Rough and Tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it didn't win and whatever. So, But uh, Bug Music was uh, w- was having a party, and I went over there with my wife, Marla, and, and we're hanging out, and there's, you know, uh, T-Bone Burnett and all these sure. you know, guys who I'd met over the years, and... And there's Jeff Bridges, and Jeff Bridges walks right up to me and says, man, Wicked Grin is one of my favorite records of all time. (laughs) And and Marla Marla looks up at him and says, you'll always be Starman to me. (laughs) (laughs) And she nailed it. That's hilarious. Uh, He's a player. Oh, yeah. He's, I mean, that movie was phenomenal oh it was really good what was it called again that heart some crazy heart crazy heart yeah Yeah, that was something huh you you could see that guy Mm -hmm. you know that guy we do you feel like you get the respect though yeah it seems like the blues community loves you and that you get the respect you get the hall of fame i'm in the blues hall of fame who knew (laughs) and you've certainly gotten nominated for grammys a lot i'm I'm sorry you didn't win one i did win one for for a collection yeah yeah um back in 83 yeah uh, as the guy handed it to me, says, if the horn falls off, it can be re- replaced for s- $75. <laughs> That's what he said. That's what he said. Said, as okay. he's handing it to you. <laughs> and what? And you did the uh, the search for Robert Johnson. That right. Like, yeah. That, that was that was intense. Yeah. 
Mississippi, Alabama. He went down there. Tennessee. Yeah. Texas. Yeah. yeah. This was an English film crew that mm. had really done their homework. Uh-huh. Uh, um, and you were, were you the host or the guide? Or I was you? the host guide yeah. on yeah. camera, no script. Yeah. Uh, Chris Hunt was the producer for, uh, it, it was for Channel 4 in, yeah. in England. And um, Kaz Gorham was the director. And we went to all these places where they had been a year before and, and lo- uh, scouted out locations mm-hmm. and people. Mm-hmm. Um, and there I was on camera with these guys. And I <laughs> didn't know what to say half the time, but it came off. And you just be, engaged with it? Yeah, I yeah. got right into it, man, because I, I realized it, it wasn't going to be about selling his soul to the devil or something right. stupid. You know, yeah. It was really who he was and where he traveled. And Did you know all that stuff? I knew bits and pieces, but uh, I found out way more than I ever thought I'd know. Did it move you? Yeah, big time. Um, there were guys that, that had gone to school with Robert. Uh, old girlfriends of his. No kidding. I mean, feeling connected like that was like really intense. Um, did you, Did you ever hear those um, those those ones that they slowed down? Did you like the songs? Like somebody said that they were. Did you, like I so I went down. Somebody to told me that I don't believe it. Yeah, I don't. But believe whatever. It. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. No, yeah. It's you weird. know, everybody was going to fool around with stuff that can never be. Re- really corroborated so sure it's just like it is what it is man yeah 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 those ones those were the 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 songs the the recordings that moved me yeah big time it's it's interesting to me because like i listen to even all the records that you do all up to the present up to like 2014 is that there's there's honesty to your blues that you know i don't hear anywhere else and you're like one of the few guys doing it do you feel like it's a responsibility? You just love doing it. I just love doing it. I, I feel so lucky, you know, to, to be still happening and yeah. uh, and rocking. And my wife, Marla, is like somebody that really helps make it happen. I'm I'm a real Luddite when it comes to computers and uh-huh. smartphones and stuff. I'm, I'm a dummy. Oh, yeah. And she's right on top of it and takes care of stuff that, you know, I... Oh, good. I, yeah, I'm, I'm a lucky guy. Where are you living now? I live in Jersey City. Okay. We, we've been there for 22 years. And what happened to your gold top? Uh, I gave it to, I gave it to a guy named Jimmy Thackeray, who played with a band called the Nighthawks. Uh-huh. And um, haven't seen it since. I was told, man, that thing is worth $100,000. <laughs> a 1959 gold les paul that's a reissue new reissue yeah from gibson. Those, are, those are beautiful yeah what's that other one you that the, the that other weird gibson that you had on the cover of uh, you're like in the grass oh right that, with uh, that corner it, it, it was a guitar that belonged to felix cavalier at, at, at atlantic we had one afternoon to do this uh photo shoot and i didn't have my guitar with me and uh Oh, I want to use this one. And, uh, it's a wild-looking guitar. What was that thing? It's a Barney Kessel model. I oh, think. okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, man, it was great talking to you. Oh, Mark, what a pleasure.
All right, folks, I hope that was interesting. Uh, go listen to some John Hammond. It'll blow you away. And don't forget, if you want a signed copy of Waiting for the Punch, go to podswag.com slash punch. That's P-O-D-S-W-A-G dot com slash punch. And if you're in Seattle, come on out to Third Place Books in Seward Park on Saturday, November 11th at 7 p.m. for our final book event of the year. I can't play any guitar right now because it's too early in the morning. Boomer lives! <laughs> <laughs>